for October 5th, 2016. This is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. I'm this creeping suspicion that the things here are not as they seem. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Although it's clear enough that energy transition is necessary and reasonable, and although we know that it's happening mainly on the grid first, before transportation and space heating, there is still much uncertainty about exactly where on the grid different strategies can be tried, how much they can accomplish, and what they'll cost relative to the alternatives. Not to mention how the rest of the grid will respond as different measures are implemented. Is it better to orient solar PV panels to the south or to the west? What are some ways the storage can be valued? What is the cost of integrating more storage, and how does it compare to the alternatives? Is there a future yet for concentrating solar thermal power? What is the real potential for various kinds of demand response, and how can it be valued? How much peak demand can really be avoided by turning down air conditioners just one or two degrees? What kinds of utility rate structures are needed to really enable effective demand response? And is there really a need for time-varying residential rates? And what are some of the issues around integrating distributed energy resources, DERs, into wholesale markets? Nearly every one of these questions points up a need for better, high-resolution modeling of how all the parts of the grid work together today, how they might work together in the future, and what the actual wind and solar resources are in various parts of the country, and so on. In other words, some very, very geeky math stuff that's beyond the ken of most mortals, including yours truly. That's why we have the National Laboratories in America, and that's where you'll find some of the biggest brainiacs in the country, serious researchers with serious math and science chops. So today we're lucky enough to have one of those researchers on the show. Marissa Humman is a senior energy scientist with Tendril, a provider of customer-facing software to the energy industry based in Boulder, Colorado. 
Armed with a PhD in applied physics from Harvard University, she previously spent five years at the National Renewable Energy Lab in their energy analysis group, working on modeling the variability of renewable technologies, thinking about how they'll be integrated into the grid, and quantifying the value of demand response and storage technologies in wholesale electricity markets, among other things. Currently, she is leading the development of a residential demand response product at Tendril, which balances a homeowner's comfort with utilities production costs. And she's here to explain some of her research in relatively plain English. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Marissa, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris, for having me. You've been involved with some very cutting-edge research at the core of energy transition, such as modeling the cost of renewable generation at high penetrations, modeling solar irradiance down to one-minute resolutions, all sorts of modeling of demand response and electricity dispatch, and now you're involved in developing customer-facing systems that will deliver residential demand response, among other things. It's pretty technical stuff, and frankly, a lot of it's over my head, and I'm afraid we'll probably only have time to really scratch the surface of some of it in this interview but I will link to the papers and so on in the show notes. So let's start with some of the research you were involved in at NREL, okay? Sounds good. Okay, so let's start with an easy one. In 2012, you led a study that looked at the economic benefits of various compass orientations of solar PV systems, which found that in certain locations, under tariffs that paid more for peak hour generation, the economic value of the system was greater if the system were oriented a bit more to the west of due south. And I recall a whole slew of articles being published in the press saying, you know, basically, you're doing it wrong and claiming that all PV systems should be oriented to the west and not to the south, as has been the long-established principle of solar PV design here in the Northern Hemisphere. So as a former PV designer of systems, that coverage drove me nuts because it was clearly about rate design, not just orientation. And that other basic factors like latitude and shading also need to be taken into account when designing a system. And further, I knew that the generation of power would be greater over the course of a year for systems that were oriented toward the south. So it was really a trade-off at some level between maximizing solar generation and maximizing income. What was your reaction to the way that report was received in the press? <laughs> well, I think the paper and people's reactions to it get to the core of the issue. There is clearly a disconnect between the ratepayer, which we started recognizing as an actual human, and power generators. And if PV owners were actually paid the market rate for their power production, they would, in some regions, benefit by orienting their systems slightly to the west except in Florida, where the cost of energy peaks in the morning, so they're actually oriented slightly to the east. And if I were a utility and I was looking at installing, you know, a 10 megawatt system of fixed orientation, I think the prudent thing to do would be to try to align the solar profile to the load profile and then try to claim some capacity credit for it. Mm -hmm. I think in California, this is pretty crucial right. since misalignment of that load and solar is causing this really large early evening ramp and the so-called duck curve. Yes, exactly. And that's costing California a lot of money to meet because essentially mm -hmm. they have to turn on a whole bunch of power plants to meet that rapid rise in net load profile. Right. Alternatively, you could couple PV with storage and suddenly due south is clearly the best orientation because you can maximize the power generation from solar and store it and use it at the right time of day. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
Now, three years ago, you were part of a team that looked at various ways to value grid power services that storage can provide, such as energy arbitrage, power regulation services, and contingency reserves. These are a few topics that we touched on in one of the earlier episodes of this podcast on storage. You modeled these for both vertically integrated utilities and for a market environment. Can you summarize some of the key findings of that study? Sure. So that was a really big study, and it went back to the basics of how do you approach measuring the value of storage. The core of that study was to look at how much value was being left on the table when you simply took the actual past prices and looked at the energy arbitrage opportunity. The biggest takeaway was that when you basically use a price taker model versus using an economic dispatch of storage, you leave about 30% of the value on the table. And so we did that because we wanted to make sure that when people were making a choice between storage or, say, a natural gas plant, that they didn't underestimate the value of that storage in an actual operation of the system. Right. So the second probably major point that that paper made was that by providing both energy and reserves, you could also increase the value of storage. It's important to model that in a true economic dispatch sense because reserves markets tend to be very shallow. And if you overwhelmed that market with storage, you could quickly collapse it, basically bringing the price down to zero. Right. So that was probably our first foray into really understanding how to model something that had the potential to bid in at zero marginal cost because there's no fuel cost for a storage device. and that modeling it in an economic dispatch situation allowed us to kind of see the breaking points of the system when you added storage to it. So did it appear that storage services were being properly valued at that point, and are they being valued any more accurately now, three years later? And if not, what sorts of regulatory changes do we need to make to value storage properly? Well, I think that it might be a question about whether or not we're valuing storage properly, or it might be a question of whether or not systems are able to dispatch it properly. Great point. So in the last couple of years, a lot of states, uh, probably about 10, have made an effort to you know, grease the skids for storage. They've you know, established financial incentives for both utility scale and distributed storage facilities. They've initiated some technical potential studies that allow for new policies to be put into place. But probably the biggest change has come in California in the last couple of weeks, where California's independent system operator, Kaiso, adopted new rules about how storage is actually bid into the market. So up until very recently, when storage was bid into Kaiso, it was bid in at a fixed state of charge, I think of 50%, and then it was dispatched from there. And now storage can bid in its actual state of charge, and Kaiso will basically know that state of charge and then dispatch the charge or discharge cycling accordingly. So I would say going back to the study that we did in 2012 or 2013 at NREL, what we did is we modeled storage the way you would expect a system operator to want to use storage. In other words, put storage on the same footing as a generator. If you model all of the properties of a storage device, with the same level of fidelity as you model the properties of a generator in terms of, you know, when you model a generator, you have its heat rate curve and its minimum load point and its maximum capacity and, you know, its on-off cycling time. And if you model those same characteristics of storage 
then you can co-dispatch them in a way that truly recognizes the value that storage brings to the system. So instead of using some heuristic about, oh, well, let's charge that storage device when the prices approach a low point and discharge it when prices approach a high point, now you can you can choose to discharge that battery to avoid starting up a generator at a high cost point in time. Uh-huh. And you could avoid shutting down a generator at another point in time by by using the excess power from that generator to charge the storage device. So true co-optimization of a storage device and generation captures that full value. And that's what I think has happened in the last, basically in the last month in California is they've really changed the way storage is able to bid into the market and therefore change the way storage is going to operate in the market. And so I expect yeah, maybe over the next year or so that we'll start to see storage basically gain more more traction in the California market because it's getting paid closer to what value it can actually offer to the system. One of many examples, it seems, that you've been involved in where just simply providing more discrete and comprehensive data about the operation of the system components is really just a key hurdle that we have to overcome. Yeah, no, I think basically when it comes to operating the grid, it's always been operating generators against a transient load. Right. And with storage or demand response coming onto the grid, we've taken baby steps to do it by just allowing them to operate kind of at will. But their true co-optimization with the rest of the grid is what's going to allow them to operate at their maximum value to the grid. Well, I think what most people really want to know is, is storage worth it? I mean, can we say at this point what the relative costs are of integrating more storage into grid power systems versus just simply adding more capacity using natural gas turbines? Well, I'm not sure that asking the question, is storage worth it, if that's the right way to frame it. I think this question should be presupposed by the need for the grid to evolve to be sustainably operated with significant penetrations of renewable resources. I clearly spent six years at, <laughs> at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, and so I'm, I'm pretty much in the camp that if we don't evolve the grid to be, to be operated primarily on renewable resources like solar and wind, that we can't decarbonize the whole industry. And so is storage worth it? Absolutely. Now, what kind of storage? I think that's definitely up for debate. So battery storage is pretty darn expensive, but take for instance, electric vehicles. In the last year, I've seen a distinct shift amongst OEMs away from the stance that there is no way that we should ever use batteries for vehicle to grid support to looking at vehicle to grid support as a both a source of revenue for them from a capacity standpoint, but also as a viable option because they don't think it's going to degrade the battery any faster than normal driving operation. So I think there are lots of potential uh, sources for storage that don't involve, you know, stationary lead acid batteries in a, in a warehouse or something like that. Sure. No, absolutely. And, you know, I constantly try to remind my listeners that there's really a whole lot of different storage technologies out there besides the conventional batteries they're familiar with or even the EV batteries. You know, there's there's the box of rocks on rails approach that's now being tried out there in Nevada, which I think is really interesting. There's all sorts of thermal storage devices that most people don't even know about, like a, you know, a vessel full of hot gravel kind of a thing. Yeah. And there's compressed air energy storage. There's all sorts of things that 
I think the research is really just sort of getting started. But your point is well taken that it's really much more about as you say, the the code dispatching and the, the optimization and, you know, what are the real opportunities to capture grid benefits depending on how you integrate it? Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, storage is definitely going to be part of the future of the grid. You know, the form of that from a technology standpoint is up in the air and probably will end up being a mix of technologies. But fundamentally, the operation of the grid has to evolve. And, and that's like re- really at the core mathematic sense of the operation of the grid has to evolve to be able to take into account those characteristics and constraints of all those different kinds of storage devices. Yeah. Now, you contributed to another 2013 study, which looked at the value of concentrating solar power systems, otherwise known as CSP, which are equipped with thermal storage. And I will admit, I've been really frustrated at the lack of utility-scale solar plants that are equipped with storage. I mean, it just seems like such a no-brainer way to get around the intermittency issue. But we didn't build them with storage at first, which I think was mainly because the RFPs that we put out for utility-scale solar didn't require it. And then CSP just started losing out to solar PV on cost in the market. Those solar PV plants didn't have storage capability either. So what do you think about the value to the grid of these CSP plants equipped with thermal storage? So when we talk about value, I want to clarify that we talked about the operational value. And so from a, a technology bidding standpoint, PV and CSP with thermal energy storage both bid in at zero marginal cost, right? There's very small variable operating costs, and there's there's no fuel cost to it. So clearly, when you bid CSP with thermal energy storage into the market, it has a higher value proposition than PV because it has that storage component. It can basically be the the completely dispatchable resource. It's you know so to speak the holy grail of renewable technologies. It's completely dispatchable comes at zero marginal cost and has no carbon impact on the grid. Mm -hmm. But those systems are huge and expensive. They're tons of steel and glass. And in maybe 10 years, maybe the cost of that will come down to meet the capacity cost curves. But at the moment, solar or PV without thermal energy storage or without any sort of storage beats CSP with thermal energy storage out in the marketplace. Now, I think that if we had a carbon tax and had a way of maybe properly valuing the capacity credit of CSP with thermal energy storage versus PV, then we can start to see better competition between them, but it's going to be another 10 years or so. So So you really think we're just sort of waiting on policy to make thermal storage with CSP viable again? Yeah, I think so. And although I will say, I think an alternative to shoring up individual plants or individual solar generation sources with storage is to broaden the balancing area, put in high voltage transmission lines. So Mm. spread out the transient dynamics of solar generation over a wider region. So you're not getting so much variability in just one spot. So I think there are probably competing options and Places like NREL and other national laboratories are actually really good at evaluating whether or not we should build a high voltage transmission line or, you know, add storage to the grid. So do you think the value equation or maybe the economic viability of storage equipped CSP plants is any different now than when you did that research? 
I say not really. By some measures, I actually think that market is a little bit flatter than it was even four years ago. We often look at high price natural gas scenarios in order to to see a realistic value of storage or a right. economically viable value of storage. And now, now nobody thinks natural gas is ever going to be expensive again. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that makes it a little hard to to see that there's going to be a lot of headway on storage, at least in the near term future, unless we change some rules about firm capacity or or the dispatchability of a resource. Yeah. And I, I think that's really a key point here is that we just really have not that we haven't really offered the full suite of value streams to these kinds of plants that are already available now to say a natural gas peaker plant. That's right. We don't. And I think I think that might change, but as I said, I think there are competing options for the way the grid could evolve and and I think not to change the subject of the interview but to talk about demand response, that's a source of readily available storage capacity located at the same location of load and might end up having a higher value proposition than, you know, CSP with thermal energy storage or a large battery bank, you know, somewhere out in the middle of of the desert. Well, all right, since you brought it up, let's let's talk <laughs> about demand response. You've done a lot of stuff that's focused on demand response. You contributed to a report that presented an, an approach for predicting how various kinds of loads might participate in demand response markets by providing three ancillary services, energy, and also capacity, down to an hourly resolution for the entire year, which is quite a feat. Then you use that information to model how these demand response services might actually be integrated into a production cost model. Now, this is pretty deep and technical stuff, and we we probably can't do it justice in this interview, but can you briefly summarize that research and explain what it can tell us about the potential for demand response? Sure. I think, I think I'd like to start by saying that demand response really is hinged on three main points. First, we have to find and quantify the flexibility of loads. In my experience, in looking at the residential load sector really closely, there's a lot of fat in the system. In other words, there's a lot of energy that's expended on a load that doesn't actually do any work, so to speak, right? It's not not lighting a particular task that actually was needed to be done at that time, or you know, it's washing a load of dishes at a time that wasn't crucial to the operation of the rest of the household. There's a lot of fat, so to speak. The second thing is that, you know, once we find and quantify those flexible loads, we need to be able to figure out how to cost effectively equip them with controls and communication technologies. I don't think we can rely on the human or even you know, a building operator to be in charge of managing that load on a moment to moment basis. It needs to be something that's part of that quote, you know, smart grid network. It needs to be easy, it needs to be intelligent and effective. And then lastly, I think to get demand response right, we gotta find the right payment or incentive structure that offsets whatever opportunity cost we might've found. So even if, there is a lot of fat in the system. The person still is probably losing out on some sort of opportunity or the system or the business is losing out on an opportunity and they need to be compensated for that. They need to figure out a way to, to, to make- get paid for opportunity cost. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was at NREL, we really tackled the first of those issues, finding and quantifying load flexibility, figuring out how much it was worth. And it was it was actually a surprisingly hard task because essentially you took a bunch of people who were really good at economic dispatch. They had been operating production cost models, 
quantifying the effect of various constraints on generators. You know, we did a lot of studies where we would like swap out coal plants for natural gas plants or, you know, put PV systems into a grid and kind of, you know, see how the system would operate. But we had really basically left load as a fixed quantity that had to be met on a five minute basis. So, you know, running running real time models every five minutes. And now suddenly load was no longer a fixed quantity in the model. It needed to be dynamic. And so given the tools we had, we said, okay, let's make virtual power plants out of these demand response technologies and figure out how they would operate in conjunction with the rest of the grid. And that goes back to that original point I made, which is if you want storage or demand response or you know any of these emerging technologies to be part of the operation of the grid, they'd have to sit in the same mathematical space as the rest of the generators on the system. Otherwise, a system operator won't know what to do with it. Right. And so we did something at, at NREL with our colleagues over at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory that I don't think really had ever been done. We sat people who knew loads really, really well in the same room as people who knew the system really, really well and painstakingly went through and quantified what were the characteristics of load that allowed them to be operated by a system operator? So how much flexibility is there in cooling a house by two degrees earlier in the morning? And how much load will that shift in the afternoon? And, you know, do we have four hours of load flexibility or six hours of load flexibility? And we basically went through and did that for 13 end uses across the, the demand response spectrum. So everything from industrial out to residential loads and basically got them formulated into something that could be dispatched. And that basically allowed us then to ask a whole bunch of really interesting questions. Things like, well, should a utility in Southern California invest in agricultural pumping for demand response or should they invest in residential cooling loads? Mm. Should we encourage control technology companies to take their control technologies all the way down to being able to operate at four seconds, basically mimicking something that would run in a regulation market? Or is, you know, is five minute or 15 minute load dispatch going to capture the most value for them? And so that was a big technological breakthrough that, that really opened the door to being able to answer some of those questions. The work now that I'm doing at Tendril takes on those second and third issues, the, you know, how do we equip loads with control and communication technologies and how do we find that balance of opportunity cost and payment? And those are pretty hard issues. <laughs> We're definitely working the, on them in conjunction with utilities, figuring out how much fat really is in the system and whether or not customers are are willing to basically, you know, let somebody else play with loads on their property in order to gain a few dollars. So, yeah, so we should probably explain for the listeners a little bit that Tendril, where you went to after your research at Enrel, is a provider of customer facing software to the energy industry, which is based right here in Boulder, Colorado. And you've been working there on optimization and control of residential energy systems, which is essentially a continued focus on demand response just in the residential sector. Mm -hmm. So, what possessed you to take that leap and what appeals to you about tackling? residential demand response. I mean, particularly considering that most demand response today, I think, comes from the commercial and industrial sectors. Well, I'll say I, I came to Tendril because I wanted to build something that would really impact the energy sector. At NREL, my research was 
10 to 30 years out. And it was fascinating. And I got to think about really big problems. But I also felt like I was a little too disconnected from the real world to know how would we actually get a utility to change the way they operated the system. Yeah. So I came to Tendril with the this, this viewpoint that if we could build something that kind of sat in that niche, basically, as an, an intermediate product between where we're currently at, which is we meet load on a minute to minute basis and we don't expect anything out of load, to the ideal version, which is load is a fully integrated part of grid dispatch, I felt like we would make a, a big leap forward. And so that's what I came to Tendril to do. Tendril's a fantastic place to work with smart people and great problems and great leadership. And I think that the thing that I didn't know before I got to Tendril that has been a, a huge blessing is that small companies like Tendril actually influence regulatory filings. We sit down with program managers at utilities and help them write their regulatory filings. We can make a huge impact on how utility executives evolve their companies. And that is a tremendous amount of influence and is pretty darn amazing. So Yeah, that's something the national labs don't do. Well and, and they don't do it for a reason. You know, they they can't. <laughs> it would be it would be really awkward for and probably a little inappropriate for government laboratory researchers to write regulatory filings. That's really outside their their space. So yeah. I think that small companies like Tendril are going to change the way utilities operate, the way the electricity system operates. So, so you really see significant potential in the residential demand response sector. You know, so I, <laughs> I will say when I interviewed at Tendril, I kind of kind of asked them, I was like, are you sure that residential demand response is the thing you want to do? I was like, you know, there's not a lot of value in it. Let me show you this paper I wrote. <laughs> and they were like, well, but that's our space. And I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll come check it out. And, and so the first thing I did when I came to Tendril is I set up a small field test. So I, I took connected thermostats, put them in a dozen Tendril homes, and I started playing with some thermal models that Tendril had built and started trying to quantify how much load you could shift away from peak. And we did this last summer and I was, I was blown away. I did not realize how much untapped thermal mass there is in a house. And particularly in some places like, like Colorado, where we have overnight low temperatures and high daytime temperatures, yeah. There is a tremendous amount of efficiency opportunity and peak load reduction opportunity just by more intelligently scheduling cooling operation. So, you know, if you can run your compressor when the outdoor temperature is 10 degrees cooler, you can boost your efficiency by a point or two. And then you can basically pre-cool the house and, and coast through an afternoon peak without the residents of those houses really knowing what's going on. And I can tell you, they're occupied during the day. I messed up a few times. I made people a little bit too cold in the morning or a little too hot in the afternoon, and I definitely got some phone calls. <laughs> but it was, I was actually really surprised about how much, how much potential there is for basically using the house as a thermal mass, using it for thermal energy storage. 
Yeah, you know, I've often wondered how well demand response and load shifting really works for air conditioning. I mean, it's it's not hard to imagine shifting the operation of a hot water heater or refrigerator, for example, to off-peak hours. You know, that's something you can do without customers really noticing it. But AC seems to be another matter. I mean, people are actually pretty sensitive to just a couple degrees change in the temperature. I mean, how possible is it to shift the cooling loads or, or are you just making people hot in the afternoon? <laughs> I would say we're actually doing a pretty good job of not making people hot in the afternoon. Uh, In order for this to work, you do have to make them a little cooler in the morning. And some people are more sensitive to that than others. But about 75% of the people that we've tried this on are fine dropping, you know, two to three degrees in the morning and then not really ever reaching higher than their, their normal afternoon peak temperature in the afternoon. And so I think that there's a pretty large potential for that. And then you really got to couple that with the incentive payment, right? So take somebody in California who's on a time of use rate, like in Southern California, Edison, their peak time of use rate is 46 cents and their off-peak period is 11 cents. That's a lot of money on the table if you can shift load from one time period to another. And I, I mean, we've calculated for people on that time of use rate, that if you shift, you know, 50 or 100 percent of your cooling load out out of that 46 cent window, you can save anywhere from three to five dollars every day. And that's that's real money. That's not one extra coffee a month. That's more like a, a Starbucks coffee every day. So. Yeah. OK, well, what kind of incentives are really needed to get residential customers to participate in demand response programs. I mean, not everybody has a 4x differential between on-peak and off-peak rates, right? I mean, that's right. And since not too many residential customers have to pay a demand charge, I assume that time of use rates is, in fact, the main tool. So I think the time of use rates are a transitionary tool. So I think that at the moment, time of use rates are necessary because that's the way our utilities are set up and that's the way regulations are allowing utilities to pay for that sort of service. But I think in the long run, just just the way the, the cell phone industry went away from, you know, paying on a minute by minute basis and paying for peak minutes and off peak minutes, I think in the long run, customers are going to demand and utilities will evolve to have customers on a fixed rate. They're on a fixed rate, but but they've coupled that with being able to do some load management that minimizes the cost of the utility providing that energy. So you're right. A lot of places don't have a time of use rate with a 4x differential, but every utility experiences more like a 10x differential on peak load days during the summer. And so they're essentially riding riding through that cost by making a profit on providing energy during off-peak times. But in the long run, I think if we can have better control over that load from a a daily load shifting standpoint, then we can move people onto a guaranteed fixed bill, a flat $100 a month for your energy and allow the utility to have the tools to manage their costs against that. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, but it, it surprises me because it's actually kind of the opposite of what I thought you were going to say. You know, I, I, I thought what you were going to say was what we need to do is match the prices that customers experience more closely to the shifting costs that a utility experiences over the course of the day. And that was going to lead me into some thoughts about, you know, something we've discussed on this show before, the potential for highly variable or nearly real-time rate structures. But instead, you've, you've gone the other way and said, we just need to raise the base price to a high enough level that utilities can just ride through the whole thing. Well, and I, I wouldn't say we, we're suggesting that we should raise the base price. I'm suggesting that instead of putting the burden on the end user, the customer, to manage their loads against a time-varying price signal, allow the utility, who's really good at understanding the economic dispatch of the system, to manage both generation and load, and basically in return for allowing the utility to manage some parts of your load, they're going to actually give you a guaranteed fixed bill that's lower than what you're normally paying. So we've basically been been working on on mathematics around cooling loads. And, and we've found that when you manage cooling loads properly by taking into account, you know, everything from occupancy to the weather outside to the normal pattern of operation to also a little bit of behavioral energy management around, you know what, you actually don't notice when I bump the temperature up by one degree, that we can reduce total cooling loads by about 20%. Hmm. And we can strategically reduce those during peak load periods. And so take somebody's bill that was normally $120, reduce it to $100, make it guaranteed, and then manage that load in conjunction with all the generation resources. So but basically my, my stance is, is that the highest value proposition for load management sits with the system operator. They are the ones with the most information about how to co-optimize load and generation. Right. So even if you gave the customer you know, real-time granular rates they will never make as good of a decision or as positive as an, of an impact on the system as if you gave that control or that decision-making capability to the utility. And I, and I think the, the, the fundamental core of this, though, is that the utility or the system operator has to have tools to do that well. So you can't manage somebody's cooling system unconstrained, right? So the, the customer needs to be able to set some expectations, and they do that not not by filling out a form, but more like, you know, this is my normal operating temperature range, right? I like it at 72 overnight. And when I'm gone during the day, you know, please don't kill my dog. So don't let it go above 78 degrees. And they do that by normal interaction with their thermostat, right? They set up a schedule or they come over and they adjust their thermostat. And the system operator needs to be able to take in that information and make good load choices that meet the constraints of the customer around their, their comfort and their expectations of what that load is going to do for them while co-optimizing that with the rest of the system. So does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it really does. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking here about some of the other ideas that we've toyed with on this show. I mean, in, in episode 20 with Eric Jumon, we talked about you know, he had this concept of like a little box that would negotiate with the utility on behalf of all the appliances in the house. 
to do sort of real-time transactions involving things like demand response or at least load shifting so that you could actually implement more of a variable rate structure, more of a real-time rate structure, but without the customer having to be involved in it because the the negotiations and all that stuff would be done by this box. You know, I, I mean, I, I've often wondered if, if real-time rate structures or anything close to it is even going to work for the residential market because obviously customers have no familiarity with rates that vary that much or with managing any sort of a user interface to control their demand to respond to a rate like that. So, you know, I, I've often wondered, like, how granular can the rates be at the residential level and how granular do they need to be to make demand response work? And I think you've you've offered kind of an interesting answer to that. And I think that it depends on the implementation of that, you know, transactional framework. I'm pretty familiar with with PNNL's work on that. I think that the core issue is is there an actual co-optimization happening at the operational level? Or is the operator going to issue a signal that basically calls for load or calls for a reduction in load? Mm -hmm. Because if it's the latter, I think you're always going to leave some value on the table, right? Just just the same way that, you know, in that storage study that I talked about, price taker models, where basically storage gets a price and decides whether or not it wants to charge or discharge based on basically past history of prices, right? Oh, this looks like a low price. I think I should charge now. Oh, this looks, looks like a high price. I'm going to discharge now. Or do you actually put the charge-discharge decision-making inside of the economic dispatch? So that real-time transactional network that has basically the house getting a signal and then the house makes some decisions, I think you still leave some amount of value on the table. And that value is probably the things that aren't captured in the marginal cost of energy. So the marginal cost of energy only captures basically fuel costs and variable O&M costs, and it doesn't capture all those startup costs. And as right. we move from you know, a grid that has 5 to 15% renewables to a grid that has 50 to 80% renewables, basically the vast majority of the costs are going to be in those startup and shutdown costs because there is no marginal cost for solar or wind. And so the marginal cost framework is really going to fall away. It's not going to be the thing that allows us to make good economic dispatch decisions. You're going to have to make those decisions on the basis of these these other costs, like like startup and shutdown costs, or or basically you know transmission switching or or other more complicated decisions. So, right. yeah. <laughs> well, okay, but let's let's get kind of get back to the core question here. I mean, how granular do the rates really need to be? Well, especially for something like residential demand response. So it, it could be that there is no such thing as a granular rate. Maybe there is no per kilowatt hour rate at all for loads anymore. That we just say, you're a house, you know, in the past you've used this much electricity. And so we're going to charge you a flat fee. This covers demand charges and energy charges and transmission charges. And if you greatly exceed our prediction of what your load is going to be next year, we're probably going to bump you up. And if if load management basically yields a much a much more efficient use of loads in the next year, then we're going to move you down. Instead of $100, we're going to only charge you $95 next year. And I realize that has a lot of problems in terms of like transient populations and you know you need data on on the household and the people in that household in order to to make those sorts of decisions. 
But I think it's a paradigm we should at least think about as opposed to this idea that we're just going to make the network, you know, nodal prices go all the way out to the individual house and have individual houses responsible for their part of the grid. Now, there's there's a lot of costs in the grid that aren't captured by that marginal price. And so that granular rate is probably not the most prudent signal to use when doing load management. Wow, that's some outside the box thinking right there. I like it. Good. <laughs> I, you know, I, I mean, it does seem to me, though, that this is going to impose a kind of a whole new kind of a burden on regulators. I think it will. I mean, it, it fundamentally changes the face of of the utility and and it puts a tremendous pressure on the regulators to make sure that the utility is is doing good by the customer, right? So well, not only that, but you'd have to have some way then of mitigating, I don't know, what amounts to basically a kind of moral hazard of customers that aren't necessarily paying for energy anymore. That's true. And I, you know, I haven't even, I haven't really gone this far in this thinking, but what happens when a customer puts solar on their roof? You know, so some of the problems with solar at the edge of the grid are grid stability issues that we don't really capture at all right now in our, in our rate structure. If you have solar and you have smart inverters, do we lower your fixed bill a little bit more? Right. You know, is there any incentive to own your own solar if we're going to basically, you know, co-opt that solar into, you know, the grid dispatch and then just change your annual electricity bill accordingly? Yeah. I mean, then it's no longer sort of an asset that you own that belongs to your house that directly impacts your bill. It's more of a... It's more of a model where the utility is basically renting the square footage of your roof. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different model. <laughs> it's, it is yeah. a very different model. And I don't think it works for all end-use loads, right? You know, I don't expect XL Energy, that's my utility, I don't expect them to know about whether or not my cell phone is plugged in or if I'm watching television. And I certainly would be pretty darn irritated if they told me I couldn't wash my dishes before I leave for work in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think you could see a system where you're like, okay, the big loads in my house, my electric vehicle, my air conditioning system, my pool pump, my electric water heater, those I will let XL Energy co-opt use as best to serve the needs of the neighborhood, the, the grid. And in return, I get basically an annual credit of, you know, 150 bucks or something like that. And, you know, I, I think... Probably the biggest problem with this is that, you know, we have a long ways to go in terms of educating, you know, the system operator all the way out to the end use customer on on how this could work. And I think I think there are some other industries that are great models for this. I mentioned the cell phone industry, but I think, you know, online streaming is another another good industry to talk about. So, you know, Netflix doesn't curtail my movie watching on Saturday night just because everybody else is also watching a movie, right? They have figured out how to handle that sort of capacity problem. Yeah. They might slow the feed down a little bit in order to, to load balance, but they don't charge me more for a movie on Saturday night, nor do they cut me off. And I think the electricity industry needs to move that same direction. They need to find the places in the system that can provide 
an opportunity for load management and manage those loads and then let everything else kind of slide through, you know, like my dishwasher. <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's a really interesting analogy, actually, because how does Netflix do that? Well, they a lot of it is using the cloud. Yeah. And so then you have to ask, well, what's what's the cloud equivalent for the utility? That's right. I, the, I guess it's a larger balancing area. I think it's a combination of larger balancing area, more more flexible transmission operation. So, you know, you can look at moving power over larger distances, which is, again, a balancing area problem. Basically, you know, the reason why we've been able to meet load on a moment to moment basis is because we do have large enough balancing areas that loads don't look quite so flickery. Chunky, yeah. yeah chunky. You know, if you look at a single house load, when the air conditioner goes on, you know, it goes from 500 watts to five kilowatts in about 10 seconds. Yeah. Right. And so if everyone did that at the exact same time, the system really actually couldn't deal with it. And so yeah. there is that sort of variability once you have those loads under being able to be you know, communicated with and controlled, you can really do that sort of, you know, basically broad storage over a whole region. So you're looking at when you think about pre-cooling a house, you're really thinking about spreading out all of those cooling loads over a 12 hour window instead of trying to have them all condensed within a three hour window. So there's tremendous flexibility once you get to that aggregate optimization level. Yeah, as as long as it works. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if this is fair. It probably isn't. But just now you brought to mind kind of the opening scene from Brazil, you know, where the, the HVAC system goes haywire and the coffee maker turns on at the wrong time and, you know, the <laughs> toast flies out and everything goes nuts because the central utility operating things is not working properly. There is definitely some risk of that. And I I have some thoughts on how to do that from a mathematics standpoint. I haven't really tested any of them, but I think this might go back to a little bit of maybe what Eric was talking about with the real-time transaction box. And I think that, you know, you could imagine a scenario where some loads are, are basically under the direct control of the system operator and other ones are under advisory control. So I would definitely never put my coffee maker under the control of the system. <laughs> There are some things that you just don't want to risk. You That's know? right. But so take a, an electric vehicle, for instance. The way we charge the battery in an electric vehicle has an impact on the long-term efficiency of that battery. And I don't know if it's reasonable or even necessary for the system operator to know about the detailed temperature across the interfaces of the battery. But the the charging system does know about that. It's basically that's the mechanism for keeping that battery from exploding. <laughs> right. And so maybe we send a combination of direct load control signals and advisory signals. And maybe those resources that only get advisory signals get a discounted capacity credit hmm. because they're not quite as dispatchable as something that's under direct load control. So sure. yeah, I mean, we're now sense. in the realm of like market design and <laughs> right. and a little bit further outside of what would have actually worked on. But but I think that I think all of these things are possible. We just need a lot of a lot of willing participants to to field test how this would work. Well in your work on demand response, have you had a chance to look at EVs as demand response assets? A little bit. I did some work with the California Zero Emission Vehicle Program, and specifically, we looked at them in conjunction with 
a whole bunch of other demand response assets in California. I think that that is not a technical potential issue. There is tremendous potential there. It's really been the OEMs that have been more reluctant to allow those vehicles to even be part of, you know, field test operations to see how well they provide services to the grid. But you can see that the electric vehicle manufacturers are positioning themselves along that load management food chain. They are, you know, establishing strong relationships with their vehicle owners, they're supplying charging stations, they're managing the settlements of those charging transactions. And I am pretty sure that as their penetrations increase, as the number of electric vehicles on the road increases, you can see them forming aggregation companies that allow them to bid that capacity into markets. And I think California will probably be the first place that that happens. Yeah, I agree. I actually wrote a report for RMI this year on using EVs as demand response assets as distributed energy resources. Cool. Just by managing the charging, not even getting into the whole V to G thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it is pretty interesting. You know, uh, once you start looking at how big the numbers can get, it starts to look pretty significant. I mean, it, it could actually be the largest flexible load on the system in time. Absolutely. And if it's not under some sort of control, it could also be the thing that just brings down the grid. Absolutely. Uh, or at least causes your peak power pricing to really spike. Yes, exactly. So have you had a chance to actually quantify the total market potential in some way or another for residential demand response? I mean, I don't know how you quantify that in terms of dollars <laughs> or percentage of the load or you know whatever. Yeah. So across the country, no. For regions, yes. I think in general, when you look at cooling loads, it is completely reasonable to expect that 50% of the cooling load is manageable on a day-to-day -day basis. I think that when you do that, the problem is, is that once you get past about 1% of the load doing that, you shift enough of the prices around that you'll start to decrease the value proposition of that, right? So yeah, like every market, if loads were completely manageable and we could basically make them flat, there'd be no additional value in managing them. Right. And so it's a hard question to answer. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I'll stick with the, I'd say pretty clearly we can manage about 50% of the cooling peak load out of the peak load window. And let's just say that that window is about four to six hours long. So Well, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. What about the heating side? On the heating side, well, so we've done a couple different things of looking at natural gas. So specifically looking at heating in areas where there are natural gas transmission constraints or flow constraints. So in the Northeast and in the LA Basin in California, both of those areas have basically a competition for gas flow to end use heating versus to natural gas peaker plants that provide electricity and during those same time periods in the winter. So when you do that, you have to construct a price signal that doesn't exist right now for natural gas because that's not something that's generally time varying. And you can do some really cool heating load shifting around that. And I haven't quantified exactly the potential because it's on a more like on a year to year basis. You got to see what the actual overall system needs are. So I don't know what the long-term value proposition is. Well, what about where heating is electrical heating rather than natural gas heating? So those regions, 
one thing we've discovered is that the thermal storage properties are more transient in the winter, basically because there's a higher temperature differential between inside and outside of the house in the winter. It's more like, you know, 50 degrees versus 30 degrees or 20 degrees in the summer. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the heating load shifting is more like two to four hours. But the good thing is, is that that corresponds well with the dual peak of heating in the winter season. So generally there's a peak between 7 and 9 a.m. and again between 4 and 8 p.m. at night. Right. And so you can actually do what you call, you know, like double load shifting during the day. So you do a little bit in the morning, a little bit of load shifting in the morning, and again, a little bit of load shifting in the evening. But we have not run any field tests on that. So those are all simulation studies. So it's hard to quantify that. Hard to quantify that one, yeah. Okay. So you've actually done quite a lot of work. I mean, as I as I look back over the, the papers you've contributed to and so on, you've done a lot of work on optimizing DERs for integration into wholesale markets. You've delved into some very arcane issues on how we model that stuff. And I don't claim to understand all your research in this area, but I guess I would describe it generally as trying to develop more accurate estimates on the costs of DERs, the the production, their potential value to the grid, their ramping characteristics, and so on. You know, this just this kind of broad effort to really get more granular data on this or be able to model it in a more granular way. Can you explain a bit why so much work has been needed on this kind of modeling and, and how those findings might be applied? Sure. So I think, you know, the guiding principle of my research over the last 10 years has been that optimization works and everything else is just an approximation to the right answer. So when I say optimization, I mean, basically linear programs that are used to solve complex problems. It sounds a little ivory tower-ish and I, I apologize for that, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, the field of linear optimization has been prevalent in a wide variety of industries for more than 70 years. You know, the electric sector picked up economic dispatch, which is a form of linear optimization in 1950s, and since then have made a number of big improvements to the use of those models that have had a substantial impact on the total cost of producing power. And so a few of those are in about 2003, system operators went from using a strict linear program that would solve basically for the best dispatch point of every generation asset on the system to solving for both whether or not a unit should be on or off based on startup costs, as well as the dispatch point. And so when they switched to those mathematics, which is called mixed integer linear programming, they suddenly saw that they had a lot more efficient system because they were taking into account those startup costs. Previously, they just thought it was good enough to only look at those variable costs like fuel costs. The next major advancement in optimization is in AC optimal power flow. So right now, what generally happens when they dispatch a system is they use a linearized version of that of that power flow equation called a DC power flow. And that basically, you know, it kind of brushes over some of the transient effects of, you know, different power injection quality points. And so when we master those mathematics of AC optimal power flow, we will see another big jump in efficiency. And as I was basically, you know, learning about all of these big changes in the optimization, 
and working on the issues of distributed energy resources, I realized that in order for DERs to be part of the grid, they had to basically meet the generation resources where they are at mathematically. And so I basically, you know, set out to try to represent those system assets in production cost models, in economic dispatch models, in order to figure out how they would be dispatched alongside all their generation resources. So while, yes, it was arcane and and might seem to others as maybe, you know, do you really need this level of detail in order for this to work? I think that in the long run, we'll find that as long as you aren't using optimization to dispatch a set of resources, you are not using your system most efficiently. Wow. You just, you just made my head spin like 360. Sorry. <laughs> That's incredible stuff. Thank you so much, Marissa. It was really fun to have you on the show. And there's a lot of really kind of interesting and new ideas to me here. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk. Well, it was my pleasure. And I appreciate all the good conversation and good questions. Sweet. We'll have to have you back on the show in the future to talk about some of the results of the stuff that you've been doing at Tendril. I think that would be fun. Sounds great. That was Marissa Humman, a senior energy scientist with Tendril in Boulder, Colorado, and a former researcher with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. I hope this conversation was useful to you, even though it got pretty dense at the end there. Trust me when I tell you that I didn't follow it all either. <laughs> but Marissa does a great job of communicating the complex math and science, and hopefully we all learn something today. I think the main takeaway for me was that we still have a great deal of work to do to model the many changes that are coming to the electrical grid and to the energy sector in general lots of work. There are still lots of models out there that look at the power system in really big multi-kilometer chunks and over really long time frames, where what we really need is models that can actually represent and forecast the behavior of renewables and other grid assets down to the household and down to the minute, or even higher resolutions than that. And this is important because better models often show significantly better potential for renewable energy and other alternatives. Indeed, and this is a subject I intend to address in a forthcoming episode, Inadequate modeling has led us astray for decades by consistently underestimating the potential for renewable energy and consistently overprojecting the demand for fossil fuels. So I'm grateful for researchers like Marissa and for our national labs, for they are an asset that most other countries do not possess. And given the complexity and the urgency of the energy transition challenge, they are a treasure and one of the very best uses of taxpayer dollars. We are very lucky to have them, and I plan to keep bringing these researchers, of which there are probably more here in Boulder than anywhere else in the country, on the show to share what they know. So don't be shy. Check out the links in the show notes and try to read some of the research I linked to there. It may be hard to understand at first, but trust me when I tell you that eventually you'll get the hang of it. That's how I cut my teeth as an energy analyst, and I keep working at it every day. And on that note, I'd like to give a little shout out to listener John Rhodes, who wrote to say that this show has helped him find the tools, resources, and information he needed to pursue a new career path. Bravo, John, and thanks for writing. It means a lot to get that kind of feedback.
And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Listeners may remember my wondering in episode 19, who would take over the assets of the now bankrupt Sun Edison? Well, that question is now partially answered. Houston-based NRG Energy has won an auction for Sun Edison's wind and solar assets in Texas and other states with a $144 million bid, according to a court filing. And I gotta wonder how former NRG CEO David Crane, who was pushed out of the company for trying to transition it to renewables, is feeling about that. Item two. After nearly a year of contentious regulatory proceedings, Nevada utility regulators approved a deal between NV Energy, Solar City, and regulatory staff to restore the original net metering rate that was eliminated last year in a controversial decision. Solar Groups and the Nevada Attorney General's Bureau of Consumer Protection had challenged that decision, saying it violated the contract clause of the Constitution because many rooftop solar contracts were predicated on retail rate net metering. Under the terms of the settlement, 32,000 existing solar rooftop customers will be grandfathered in under the original retail net metering rates over a period of 20 years. The settlement applies to customers who applied or installed a rooftop solar system before December 31, 2015. This decision corrects what was clearly a wrong-headed and probably illegal move by the PUC and avoids setting what could have been a very dangerous precedent of breaking good faith with consumers. Item 3. After eight years of wrangling, the Bureau of Land Management has finalized a plan specifying acceptable uses for nearly 11 million publicly owned acres of the California desert, including recreation, conservation, and the development of renewable energy projects. More than half of the land will be set aside for conservation, and a mere 388,000 acres were explicitly set aside for renewable energy. According to the federal decision, that area is sufficient to support 27 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity from wind, solar, and geothermal plants. Conservationist groups appear to be relatively satisfied with the so-called Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan and its protections for species like the desert tortoise, whose habitat is threatened by the development of utility-scale solar and wind farms, among other things. But solar industry reps are not happy, saying that the plan will inhibit progress on energy transition. In any case, the fight isn't over. Next up for consideration is a second phase of the plan, which would make similar designations on private rather than public lands. Item 4. After nine years of debate and delay, the UK's first new nuclear power station in two decades has been given the green light by UK Prime Minister Theresa May. The Hinkley Point C station is expected to cost £18 billion to build and would deliver 7% of the UK's electricity when finished. Proponents claim that the reactor would be a necessary replacement for older nuclear plants and dirty coal-fired plants that are currently scheduled to be shut down by the time Hinkley Point C is scheduled to start up in 2025. But opponents, and I count myself among them, note that the 92 pound 50 pence per megawatt hour price guaranteed to the plant's operators is already twice the cost of the wholesale power. And that price is guaranteed for 35 years and inflation indexed. Solar farms and onshore wind in the UK are already cheaper than that, and it should go without saying that efficiency, demand response, and, well, just about any other source are cheaper than that right now. And we can reasonably expect that offshore wind in the UK will be cheaper by the time Hinkley Point C is commissioned. It's a terrible deal for UK consumers. The project has been heavily laden with politics since the very beginning. And as far as I can tell, no one has produced a serious, itemized proposal for a portfolio of alternatives that might do the same job as Hinkley Point C. 
The Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit, a UK nonprofit focused on energy and climate, has issued one paper, which I'll link to in the show notes, which offered sort of a hand-wavy assessment of two alternate packages, including the assertion that efficiency alone would obviate the need for the new reactor. But the report really lacks the kind of detail and comprehensiveness that we saw, for example, in the proposal put forth by Friends of the Earth that persuaded PG&E to shut down its Diablo Canyon nuclear plant in California earlier this year. It's a very poor show all around. For the UK government officials who backed the plant, for opponents who haven't pulled their weight with hard analytical work, and for UK consumers. But to end on a high note, item five. The Swedish energy giant Vattenfall won a tender to build two offshore wind farms with a total capacity of 350 megawatts in the Danish North Sea for a record-breaking 60 euros per megawatt hour. That's $67.33 per megawatt hour, or 6.7 US cents per kilowatt hour. The bid is a whopping 20% cheaper than the previous record set by Denmark's Dong Energy for an offshore wind project in the Netherlands just two months ago. And for those whose brains aren't totally fried at this point in the episode, that's roughly half the cost of the strike price for the Hinkley nuclear contract for offshore wind. Now, granted, this is a unique site which helped to bring the cost down, but it speaks to the rapid cost declines for offshore wind, which appears to be ready to start scaling up in a big way. And on a side note, a Bloomberg article, which quotes our friend Mark Lewis of Barclays, who was our guest for episode six, speculates that the Vattenfall and Dong Energy offshore wind projects are undermining the European Union's carbon trading system, as competitive auctions and renewable energy incentives are effectively taking over as the main drivers for energy transition. That carbon market has been notoriously broken for years, but now Brexit has accelerated its demise. So it's a good thing that the wind and solar industries are now at the point where they can compete in many markets without subsidies. Bloomberg New Energy Finance projects that the installation of offshore wind in the EU are set to double by 2020. As always, see the links in the show notes for more details. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.